Hello and welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. I'm John Koo, and in this series, I'm joined by a range of experts to explore how we can best design our way out of a climate crisis. For the last eight years, my role at Interface has seen me meet and collaborate with leading thinkers and doers in sustainability and design. And in this podcast, I get to share these conversations with you. This is our 10th and final episode of this series, and we've got the perfect guest to round off series one. Adam Strudwick is a principal architectural firm, Perkins and Will. He's built his career working in the commercial workplace industry, working on landmark projects across the world. In 2020, Adam was part of the team at Perkins and Will and Penroy and Prasad that launched the Net Zero Now report. In this series, we've been exploring both the problems and potential solutions on tackling a climate emergency. For the world of interiors, this report was a game changer, setting out an industry-leading net zero carbon plan for interiors projects. We'll be exploring the story behind the Net Zero Now report, how it's been received and what's coming next. We'll also look at how Adam's been inspired to do things differently, both within the industry and outside. With that in mind, let's hear from Adam. Hi, Adam, and welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. Where, whereabouts do we find you today? Hi, John. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I am in not so sunny Stoke Newington in North London, working from home like most people are at the moment, if they're able to, hopefully. been difficult in the construction industry at the moment in terms of people moving around for work. And, you know, I think the industry has done an amazing job of, of staying open through the majority of the last year, but obviously in, a, in as safe as way as possible, hopefully. Yeah, so we're recording this at the end of, of January in uh, 2021 and um, sure has been a, a difficult year, but one where I think we've probably found new ways of working. And I also think it's made us think differently about what the workplaces of the future will look like. But where I wanted to start, I mean, you're a leading light when it comes to the design world, looking at sustainability from an environmental and from a social perspective. But for you personally, what was the beginning of, of that in your your career how has the environment nature sustainability shaped your career well it's very kind first first of all uh it's a really good question i mean I, to be honest you know I'll, I'll be i'll be frank it's been it's quite a recent thing that i've had a kind of role where i've had a big focus on this you know i've w- always worked for design practices um for the last 20 years and you know the growth of sustainability within kind of interiors and refurbishment and fit out has kind of happened really well during that that time, um, and you know every every time you do a project, you look to push things or you work with a client and, and find ways of of trying to make change. Um, and it's you know it's kind of incremental over over a long period of time. But in in the last year, I've had opportunities to kind of really push it in terms of working with Perkins and Will and our clients. Um, and it's it's been lucky for me because that kind of period has also kind of coalesced with, I guess, having having a bit more time available. You know, in in 2020, everyone had a bit more time, I think, to to think about new things, which is which is you know both both good good and bad. Um, and also, you know, over the last certainly over the last 12 to 18 months, you know, major organisations I think have have really had to up their game in terms of what they're representing from a sustainability perspective for their business 
the Paris Agreement was obviously some time ago now, but but it really seems since since 2019, really, most major organisations have kind of really reinvigorated what they think they need to do in order to try and try and meet the goals that we all have around climate change um, over the next 10 to 20 years. So, so I guess those two things, me, me having a, a position where I could spend more time on it and and industry kind of having more of a focus on it and just you know the media having more of a focus on it, all those types of things um, have, have really helped. I, I sort of feel that the kind of brand of net zero has been kind of marketing thing more than anything, um, positive marketing thing, you know, sustainability, practices and architecture have been around for kind of 50 years but but suddenly net zero is something that people can hang on to and i think that it's something that people can really associate with that we need to you know we need to reduce our carbon footprint in order to reduce greenhouse gases and climate change um, and the consequences of that and also you know the, the habitat loss that also surrounds that so so all those things kind of came together which has been great also you know people start to say you know i've got two young children and People start to say things like, you know, in 10 years time, you know, when your, when your kids ask you, you know, what did you do about the, the things that were, were going not so great in the world? You know, you want to be able to say that you tried to help in you know, very small, small ways, but that you tried. And so that, you know, th- those sorts of things, have, I guess, have all given me a little bit more of an emphasis to think about this in terms of the, you know, the, the small part that we play um, in, in the construction industry. In terms of whether it's yourself or your kids or your clients... Who's really been inspiring you out there through the media? Um, who's been helping put this on the agenda? Or who do you think people should be be looking to uh, for a little bit of inspiration? Obviously, David Attenborough has done, I think, amazing things in pivoting the way that he communicates to really focus on over the last ten years the the impact that we're having on the environment in you know in all different ways, not just in climate change, but in habitat loss and and those types of things. I think you know he's He's a man that has really helped to drive the conversation. I've been really kind of interested and inspired, I guess, a little bit by the work that Patagonia, the apparel brand, have done. They are basically fundamentally just a sustainable brand. It's not. It's not a kind of a tag in. It's you know tag on. It's something that they started with, you know. And I felt years ago when they started to tell people not to buy their clothes that yes, that's amazingly brave as a proposition and also you know like fundamentally successful you know that brand has grown from strength to strength in terms of coverage and profitability um and it shows that being brave can have really strong financial results i think they've just announced that they're going to sell secondhand second life clothes alongside their new clothes in their stores you know which which is something which again is another really brave step and i think that it's something that other other manufacturing industries um, of which you know we're we're part of can can really learn from. So you know I think there's people there's people like David Attenborough there's there's brands you know the fashion industry is is like the like the construction industry a massive contributor to carbon in in our planet you know and it's bad the fashion industry is is bad in many ways but also there's some great organisations like Patagonia like um, Adidas and Nike who are really focusing on circular circularity of design who are doing some interesting things so I think we can look at people we can look at other design industries I'm really privileged to work alongside a guy called Sanand Prasad from Penroy and Prasad who are one of our architectural studios um, as part of Perkins and Will and Sanand is the chair of the UK GBC at the moment um, and has been a kind of pioneer in sustainable architecture in the UK for many many years so he's a really fantastic 
man to kind of work with and, and talk to about some of these issues. And, you know, he's been pushing a lot of what we're talking about for many, many years. And, and you know, it's really beneficial to us in a more, I guess, a more commercial market to to learn from that. Absolutely. I think um, on the, the Patagonia side, I think one thing that always strikes me is how they were a corporate activism brand um, that's now diversifying from tackling the circular economy and tackling fast fashion to working on restorative agriculture. Uh, that that vision that Yvonne Shulinard and the others have, and I guess it's probably the same with um, Sanand and your, your your colleagues that ability to look wider, to face the big issues, and to to turn kind of promises and pledges into action is what the the world needs to see whether it is in the world of fashion or in the world of the built environment exactly and I, you know i i've kind of come to learn really over quite a short period of time that as you know the, the work that we do the studio that i'm part of at perkins and will you know we're focusing on on, on mainly interior work uh, refurbishment work for you know commercial organizations hospitality hospitality brands you know education life sciences it's, it's mainly interiors work that I'm particularly interested in. And actually, when, when you kind of break it down and when you look at carbon life cycle assessments of the schemes that we work on, you know, and these are big, these are big screen, schemes of hundreds of thousands of square foot, the actual interior component of the life cycle analysis is a really small percentage of the overall carbon footprint of that scheme. When you look at the um, baseboard architecture or you look at the mechanical and electrical components of that building. And so, you know, you, you look at those numbers and you can feel, to be honest, quite despondent about the part that we can play in bringing those numbers down because it is actually quite a small part of the overall scheme. But I think for, for us, the other way of looking at it is, you know, we're also generally seen on, on our projects as the lead designers, as a kind of lead consultant. And so therefore, although our, our part is maybe small in terms of the actual impact of our design, our part is is much, much bigger in terms of driving the project team, driving the client and driving the industry to make change. So a big component of the initiatives that we've been working on recently is obviously looking at ourselves, looking at how we design our schemes, looking at the products and materials we specify, but also more as importantly is is working with the supply chain and the wider industry on, on where we think we can help and where improvements can be made. And so, I mean, I guess, you know, what, what I'm saying is, our, you know, our, our design element is really the sort of tip of the iceberg, but our role can go much deeper in that in trying to trying to make improvements. Um, and that's, you know, similar to, the, you know, you mentioned with Patagonia, you know, they're really looking into their supply chain. They're looking at where everything comes from, how they can influence that in order to then get to the end result of their product. And that's a, that's the kind of take that we need to have as well. We can't, it's not enough just for us to look at what we're designing. We need to look much deeper than that. It's funny because that really resonates because I kind of think when I started out working for an interiors manufacturing interface years ago and I used to go to sustainability conferences and people used to kind of say, oh, surely we just, you know, the, the big impacts in the steel or the big impacts in the corn shell. And I used to say, well, that's a very fair point in terms of when you look at the numbers, that is obviously true. But it's thinking about how can you make your part of the world or the area that you have influence over do things better and differently and what ripple effect can that have you know discussing there going to suppliers um finding a way to convene groups so you people are actually seeing the different perspectives of what net zero might mean for them i think interiors is an area that has for a long time had that potential and in recent 
years, that potential is being realised, especially through the work that you guys have been doing the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think so. I think you know, I was speaking actually to the guys at um, Letty a few months ago. That I know, you know, you've you've mentioned them before, and they're doing great work. And you know, they were saying to me that it's about that having the conversations. I know it sounds a bit kind of ephemeral, but actually having the conversations with people is is kind of is really important, even if nothing particularly good comes out of that first interaction. Um, you know, getting the ball rolling, making sure people are aware of the issues. We're lucky, I guess, in our position as, you know, we're one of the biggest architectural and design practices in the world right now. And so, you know, we have a level of influence that we need to use when we're having conversations with people. You know, we're not we're not interested in bullying people to change, but we're interested in helping and educating people in, in what might be interesting things for them to look at. So just having those initial conversations, you know, they may not pan out in a product or they may not pan out in a project at that actual time, but, you know, it gets it gets the ball rolling um, and it gets, you know, every, every time you have those conversations, they start to chip away at the problems. Um, and then that ripple effect starts to happen. And, I, you know, I, I really feel that, you know, I don't think it's us that started it, but that ripple has really started to kind of, be, be larger you know be a be a larger ripple over over the last year or so and it's going to become a point where i hope that you know sustainability in our world is just something that everyone is doing and striving for all the time you know there's there's some amazing work that's been done but you know in the in the work that we do there are other drivers on projects which generally have a greater priority at the moment still in, in many many in many many situations before we go into some brilliant stuff that you guys have been doing at perkins and Will and Penroy and Prasad, just to wanted to ask for your reflections on kind of the development of Architects Declare, of Architects Climate Action Network, and similar groups in terms of stoking those discussions from a from an industry perspective and from the architects' perspective. Is that the is that giving us the momentum that we need? Is it opening up discussion in the way that you would expect? I mean, Architects Declare seems to be a pretty sensitive subject at the moment. Um, we're you know we're signed up. Um, at Perkins and Will signed up, Penroy and Prasad signed up to Architects Declare. Um, we have been for a while. Um, but, you know, there's been obviously in the last few months a lot of kind of press around that in relation to um, organizations or firms that are signed up to Architects Declare who are carrying out working sectors that people feel maybe aren't aligned to that initiative. It's really difficult. And, you know, it kind of like goes back to my, to, to kind of what I was talking about a little bit earlier is this, you know, for us, there's this theoretical challenge between like development and um, waste, you know, or a, a big part of sustainable design is, is obviously reduction in what we do. Um, but as an industry and as an economy, um, and as a nation, we need to be making things. We need to be producing things. We need to be developing. You know, we're we're uh, the UK is a leading global um, has a leading leading global industry in architecture and design. You know, and it's and it's fantastic. And so we and we want we want as an economy for that in, industry to to continue to develop and to have the global reach that it does at the moment. Um, and you know, organisations doing big development work around the world is part is part of that. Um, but also, you know, we're challenging ourselves to do less in some areas as well. And so this is where we have this big tension between between development buildings, development of industries, development of organizations and, you know, reduction in other in other areas. And it's really a complex. It's a complex challenge for people to have. You know, personally, you know, I have always understood sustainability to be to be three, a kind of three pronged attack around environmental sustainability, but also financial and economic sustainability. And so, you know, I want 
people to make things. Um, when I'm talking to my designers about, you know, do we need to choose less things? There's a there's a massive conflict there, and so it's definitely a struggle for us to think about how we can balance that. And it's easy for us to say that you know we can invest in green green industries and green jobs, and and that's definitely something that will come. Um, but it's not something that's immediate at the moment for people who are looking for work or or companies that are looking to develop in some ways. So um, I think it's a constant struggle between kind of, in my mind, simplistically development and reduction. Yeah, I think, I guess it's got to kind of grow, grow up to its teenage years where it's being introspective and, you know, thinking about that move from just being a pledge or a signatory to what are you really saying? What are you trying to embody? What are the, what are the values? And it's a, it's a difficult discussion. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the biggest challenge that we're kind of coming across is in many in many situations there isn't there isn't a better way of doing it. You know, there is conflicting views on the best way of doing these things, um, and there is no right answer to a lot of the questions that are being posed at the moment. There's only kind of the the only answer is to keep pushing and keep looking for that progress. But often, you know, there isn't an actual kind of clear right answer. You know, I think there's there is a great opportunity to to kind of come together more and but, but equally one of the the kind of things you mentioned about the initiatives that are around at the moment the architects declare and um letty who you know i think are doing a great work is the thing that i found is there's a lot of information out there for people there's a there's a lot you know there's a lot of accreditation there's a lot of bodies there's a lot of initiatives there's a lot of great work but i do kind of fear that some of that just gets lost because there's so much of it and you know is there is there a need for a more cohesive approach now that's why i think net zero has has kind of caught on so quickly because it's just such a really simplistic idea that you know that everyone can everyone can kind of understand you know our clients are saying to us we want a net zero building really to be honest many of them don't know what that means and you know it's 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 hard it's hard and it's nuanced and it's broken down between many different factors but but they can kind of grab that as a concept you know we want our building to not contribute to um carbon the the impacts of carbon in the world and it's, it's a really simple jump for them to make from from that to the the good you know there is a lot of kind of complexity as well obviously around other areas and so when i think about everything that's out there that's that's when sometimes i get confused myself um, because it's, you know there's so much good work being done. I can understand why people who are looking at this, who maybe don't have as much time as we do to spend on it, can can get can get lost or can get confused by the amount of information that's out there. Here's a tricky one from manuf- from manufacturers' perspective. We make things. We want to make things more responsibly, and we want to make sure that things are being used more circularly and intelligently. But we have to find a way of balancing doing good with still succeeding as an entity economically. Otherwise, we won't be able to do any more good. So how do you do good whilst doing well? And then I think it's an interesting time there because a lot of people talk around the need for a green recovery and the need for a green and inclusive recovery. And as we kind of head towards COP26, I wonder if this is a one of those times where there is that potential to get the right people together to, to listen to different views, often sometimes opposing views, but to find a way through understanding different positions a good way forward yeah yeah no absolutely i I, you know our clients need that i i I think that um and yeah this is where i'm can be very contrary is there's also a need for complexity as well though you know because you know everyone talks about science-based initiatives and i think every everything we do needs to be backed up by science but there are people who you know there's there's a lot of people that say, you know, I'm doing something and it's carbon neutral or it's net zero. And actually, you, you can't, it can't be as simple as that. You know, if, if someone says to me, you know, this thing is carbon neutral, I'm, I'm, I'm the first thing I'm going to say to them is, is that operationally or is it embodied? You know, which, you know, because if it's operationally 
carbon neutral that's great you know you're maybe you're running your building through all electricity and it's and it's green energy and that's great but the embodied um energy within that building and the embodied carbon within that building is, is probably a much more complex conversation so i think i think we do need simplicity we need to give people um clarity and a roadmap of how they can make improvements but that needs to be be a foundation there of kind of detail and science because i do worry that we're going to start to see a lot of people talking about net zero and being carbon neutral in a very kind of high level way without actually really getting into the weeds and the detail of it vw's carbon neutral car or net zero car that they promoted recently is great but what does that really mean what does it apart from it being carbon neutral what you know what does it what does that really mean that's that's where we need to we need to understand more yeah absolutely one of the biggest challenges we face is how do you simplify that message how do you make it easier for people to make the right choice or easier to enter the the discussion? And that's something that I think as an industry and beyond our industry, I'd agree it's a, it's a huge challenge and one that needs any way of resolving as soon as, as soon as possible. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, we as a, as a practice um, globally have, you know, had a big, emphasis on sustainability for for many many years and you know as as have most of our peers or a lot of our peers um and actually last year we launched um a kind of slightly more under the radar initiative for our in our architectural studios to um at reba reba stage two um concept design to deliver a net zero carbon report on our projects um you know most of our architectural projects are kind of bigger and longer and um slower so we don't have to do as many of those reports as we as we do now in our interiors um team and so you know really um steve chart and rmd said uh, you know we need to be doing this for interiors as well um and you know that's that's the kind of the that's the kind of trigger for starting it but but in reality you know there's a couple of things you know more, more and more organizations now are putting a higher emphasis on this and as you mentioned you know 2021 now more companies are going to be making their declarations this year but also many already have you know obviously microsoft have made a pledge to become i think carbon negative amazon have a carbon neutral goal um ikea lego you know large banks as well are all making statements about when they need to commit to a uh, reaching a target of their um, carbon reduction um, and that's you know going to continue and continue and continue um, and so you know we need as an organization who works with those clients like yourselves we need to be aligned with that we need to be able to talk to them about how we can deliver those promises that they're making to their to their shareholders or making to you know their clients or making to their customers and what I think has been really interesting is, you know, you talked about the challenges, I guess, of an organization's corporate um, declarations actually kind of filtering down and manifesting in real estate. And I think that that has been difficult over the years. You know, often the people delivering projects, you know, like, like ourselves, like our clients, you know, they've got lots of complexities to get those jobs done. You know, they've got budgets to worry about. They've got to get it done on time to make sure people have somewhere to work. Um, design has to be great the quality has to be great um and often there's a disconnect between real estate and maybe the declarations that were made in the past around sustainability but now i think it's much simpler it's if companies are saying they're going to be carbon neutral by um by 2030 or, or 2040 or whenever it may be 
you know, in order to do that, your, the offices that you're designing and delivering need to be able to be run to be carbon neutral within that time scale. So straight away, as a as a real estate client and as a design team, you start to have a much more tangible connection between the building and that and that kind of commitment as an organisation. You know, we know that we can deliver, or we can start to try and get to delivering buildings which are carbon neutral. And so I, I think now there's a there's a much easier jump from an organisation's commitment to our kind of role in terms of real estate and i think that's why we're seeing more and more um push at corporate level for us to think about this um and it makes it much easier for us to align our statements um with with what they're doing and you know so so i think there's a great coalescence there between our our mission and organizations declarations um you know fundamentally it's also great. It's great marketing for us. You know, we we want to be having a point of difference. We want to be doing work which is different to our competitors. We want to be pushing the agenda. We want to be inspiring our team and attracting talent who feel that this is a really important, um, a really important issue that they want to contribute to. So you know, there's a whole bunch of drivers for doing it. But fundamentally, you know, we feel that more and more of our clients need to do this, and um, we need to be in a position where we can deliver it. Um, we are already seeing, you know, in the last six months, more briefs coming through, more tenders, more RFPs coming through, where um, where clients are asking for the project to be to have a carbon uh, net zero emphasis or a target. Um, and I believe that there'll be a time in the not too distant future where carbon budgets will be set for projects in the same way that financial budgets will be set. And that the team will have to, you know, we've always had to deliver projects to budget, to, to a number, to a financial number. I think pretty soon bigger clients are going to be asking us to deliver those projects to a carbon budget as well, because they're going to be given they're going to be given a carbon budget to run their portfolio on in the same way, an annual carbon budget to run their portfolio on in the same way that they're given a, a financial budget every year. I think what I'd like is if you can simplify it for people to enter the discussion, but you can also arm them with the questions that dig out that appropriate level of detail to make sure any claim is authentic and that any claim is actually getting us where we need to be. That's that's what's crucial. It's 2021 and I have a hunch that in the lead up to COP26, we're going to see a whole host of organizations setting corporate net zero goals and and promises and as part of that they'll be looking at making various promises around their their building stock now in recent years i've seen a gap between what's said by a, a ceo and what's said by um some of the internal design teams or what happens when when, when these large companies want to to realize those ambitions and one of the things I was most excited about last October was when yourself, Adam, and Perkinsville and Penron Prasad launched your Net Zero Now report because you finally put a spotlight and a roadmap on how some of these, some of our mutual clients and mutual big companies could bridge that gap. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about how the Net Zero Now report came to be? Yeah, they, they are. They are, and you know, we, you know, when you think about the buildings in the city of London, for example, um, and you know, the breakdown between architecture, between interiors, between furniture, you know, we we have a big. Our part of the industry has a big part to play. The waste thing is, is you know, frankly, you know, it's embarrassing, really. And you know, we all, we've all 
contributed to to that and our industry has you know done amazing work but there's still a long way to go in those areas um and so all of those things are you know give i guess real importance as to as to why we're doing this you know most people know (laughs) it's rare you speak to someone who doesn't who doesn't care who doesn't think that this is important it's often though a, a question of priorities and you know accessibility to the funds or to the time or to the effort in order to achieve these things. But the waste thing is really is is really something we can I think focus on designing products um, and interiors which are more circular. I think is something that we that we have to do. Looking at working with the main contractors and supply chain and waste, you know, is something which there's a lot of there's a lot of improvement that could be done. And this is why some of the challenges are really kind of institutional challenges rather than design challenges. As I mentioned earlier, you know our role as you know kind of like significant tri- contributors to design to, as lead designers. It's our responsibility to to work within the kind of institution or the industry and see where we can make improvements. You know, the London fit out industry has done amazing things on waste. For example, you know we know that most projects in London will will get over ninety percent um, diversion from landfill, which is great, and you know much higher than other European or global cities. But we're not, we don't really know where that where that where that waste goes to, and we still don't massively report on whether that's high grade or low grade recycling. Um, so there's more work to be done there. You know, we know that there's suppliers like yourselves have have you know strong initiatives on how to recycle offcuts, for example, from site or tiles which you know have come to the end of their life. But you know, the strip out industry or the fit, the the installation industry doesn't always align with those kind of initiatives, and so there's a, there's a gap there between what's possible and what's being done that we need to try and close um for me kind of one of the things that kind of lit a little bit of a fire in thinking about how we design and trying to think about pivoting our kind of fundamental design approach is this kind of concept of buildings as material banks you know every time it's something that i'd never thought about really until last year or really understood but this idea that every time we build something it it's not a use of that asset but it's an opportunity of to store that asset to be used again in the future um and that you know every building is really like a b&q for the next project as opposed to the end the end of that of that product's life and when you look you know when you when you sort of like i cycle around london a lot and if i cycle down into city and i see all of those buildings with all of that stuff inside and you think about that as a as a resource as opposed to just a use it completely changes how we think about designing products projects how we think about components being fixed together how we think about um putting in place um processes so that those projects and products can be taken apart in in 10 years time in a way which is which is easy to do and has has a lack of friction to it i mean to me that would be that'd be really interesting it would be a natural progression from if we think at the end of this year at an international governmental level 26 will tell you that we are way behind where we need to be the next thing people say is well what what can you do and you know thinking about having a carbon budget for a for a building or new project or retrofit and that being given the same weight and value as the the financial budget that you have would be would be a real step forward i mean what i really liked about the report was that you were able to put a, a stake in the ground that you were able to kind of show us some statistics within interiors that would make us kind of really think like, I think you, you shared that, you know, the crown estates had said that interior fit out represents the yeah, 40% of the energy use of a building. And, uh, and research from ripe office had said that 
nearly 300 tons of fit out goes to the landfill every day, which, you know, these are a staggering stats um, that really get the tension. Yeah. I mean, I think, so. I think it's, it's definitely happening. Um, I, I think it's this idea that, you know, we've all, as architects and designers, we've always done drawings that show how things go together. And now we need to do drawings as well to show how things come apart and that they form part of the, the kind of operational manual of the building so that, you know, it's easy because there's no point just saying we've done all of this stuff because, you know, we know that in 10 years time when that building's going to be refurbished, no one's going to do any of these things unless we make it easy for them now. So that's why we have to like, you know, and, and actually BIM and Revit um, are, can also contribute to that. But that, that's why we have to make it easier to make sure that these kind of promises or commitments that we're doing now can actually really happen in 10 years time. Cause there's no point in designing a scheme that can be taken apart um, for someone in 10 years time, just to rip it all out and put it into a skip. You know, obviously it's just a waste of energy and time and money. So, so we have to really think about, you know, the, the taken apart manual. Um, and it, I, you know, Ikea, I think are doing some great work in this, you know, and, and when we talked about some kind of brands or organizations earlier, I didn't mention Ikea, but, you know, they, they, I think now are also pivoting their design approach to really think about how their products can be taken apart to be reassembled. Because we all know that, you know, Ikea, you know, they do, they do some, you know, okay products. It's, it's great. Um, it's great cost. Everyone's got it in their house. You know, we put it together, but we know that if we move house or we want to move that furniture, taking it apart is, <laughs> doesn't necessarily then go back together again. And they, I think they've identified that a long time ago. And as well as I think focusing on and having a stream um, to their armory around secondhand furniture. They're also now concentrating on how you can put their furniture back together again. So, you know, those sorts of initiatives are things that we need to embrace within our industry as well. Yeah, I really liked, um, you did an interview where you talked about reversible design and thinking about when you're designing a, an interior, bring up blueprints for disassembly. And it's, you know, it's practical. It makes sense. And it's from a circular perspective, it's just odd that people have not really embraced that up until now so much. There's a few things. I mean, one thing is we want to cover as much ground as possible. So we're, we're launching um, just now, actually, a new database, which is called Now, funnily enough, um, which is a database where we'll be asking all our supply chain to contribute to. And it's an online searchable database for our design teams to use. And it will actually rate products. So you know, our designers will be able to go onto that database and select a product type they're looking at, whether it's a carpet tile or a fabric or a something that's more bespoke and it will be given a rating. Um, and so that's going to straight away allow us to kind of focus on really using what we feel are the best materials from a, from a carbon perspective, from a recyclability perspective, from a diversity and inclusion perspective. Um, that helps. We, we know when it comes to interiors that the raised access floor is one of the biggest contributors to carbon is probably the least kind of glamorous and sexy part of our industry but you know these are big heavy bits of tiles which every building has so we know that if we're doing a refurbishment we really want to try and focus on reusing the raised access floors i think the market for a kind of secondhand raised access floors is something that could could be developed better um, and we know through life cycle assessments that you know raised access floors are a big part of the mass and the carbon in the building the second biggest element that we're kind of aware of in terms of the the assessments that we do is kind of furniture and task furniture specifically. So I guess in, in answer to your question, I think, you know, the task furniture market is, and manufacturers is something that we'd love to kind of work more with. And, you know, it gets, it gets complicated because it's like Ikea, you know, they want to sell new furniture, um, but they're also now wanting to sell secondhand furniture. 
as we mentioned, Patagonia want to sell new clothes. They want the provenance of those products to be great, but they also want to sell secondhand products. So I, I think that the kind of second life refurbished task furniture market is something that is interesting to explore further because not not because we want to not because we're interested in it in any other reason than we know that it's a big contributor to carbon on projects and we also know that m- most of that furniture is designed to to last for kind of 10 15 years but it isn't necessarily being used for that length of time um, or it's not being used effectively for that length of time so there's a couple of reasons why it's a good part of our industry to focus on because it can have the the impact and I, I know there's four or five people that listen to this podcast who work within that industry or working within the um promoting the circular approach on that and i you know in terms of people i think in the uk do great work you know whether it's ripe office or um crown um and annie beavis and the guys do some great stuff around offering routes for reuse now unfortunately time's um coming to an end for us um as a last question if people want to find out more around what's happening with net zero now report and what you guys are doing this year what's the best way to stay for them to stay connected with the great work you guys are doing contact me i'm always available for for contacts um so you know give give the studio a call and, and ask to speak to me or drop drop me a note we have a specific website that uh, sorry email that's linked to our to our new now database which is now london at perkinsandworld.com um so any suppliers or manufacturers or anyone that's interested in being involved in that in that kind of data collection initiative please get in contact with us through that way if there's any suppliers that want to talk more about it we're always really open you know our one, one of the things to be honest i'm really passionate about is a, a lot of the processes that are put in place for sustainable design and specification and epds and things like that are really beneficial to large organizations you know an interface your your organization are doing amazing work and, and and also have the resources to kind of tick all the boxes that we like to look for but we are also really interested in smaller manufacturers who you know who are doing great work but maybe don't have the resources to you know be able to go through all the all the box ticks and exercises that maybe sometimes people look for so you know i guess i i, I would ask that that those you know those those kind of smaller people that are doing newer um things maybe on a smaller scale but certainly things that we could could use in our projects are also would also um come forward and, and want to work with us as well absolutely i think we have to if we're going to scale something and change an industry we have to bring everyone along with us so on that note and thank you so much for your time it's been fascinating to explore the work you guys are doing and i'm really excited to see how it pans out in 21 2021 2022 and into this decade because i think you've got a great a great program a great set of goals and it, it's gonna have a wonderful ripple effect yeah, me too. I, mean, I, I think that you know the work the work that we've done that we're doing and the plan that we've set out is you know it's a ten it's a ten year plan, but we, we've broken that down into kind of yearly um, yearly results. And you know, I, I really feel by the summer of this year we're gonna we're gonna have a huge amount of data on the projects that we're designing in terms of life cycle analysis. We're gonna know much much more about where we need to be focusing our efforts. We're gonna have a really great database of products and materials which we know tick the boxes from a sustainability. Um, perspective and and the diversity and inclusion perspective and some of the projects that we're designing with this new approach will be coming to completion so we'll be starting to see see how it all looks and the other the other thing that maybe i just touched on at the end we're working on is also the cost impact of this so we're working on a report at the moment um, that will look at a cost analysis of focusing on, on carbon neutral 
interiors means to a project in terms of the financial impact. And I think that those types of initiatives are really going to help us when we're talking to corporate clients about unlocking these elements on projects. So that, that's something that we'll have um, before the summer as well. Oh, that sounds sounds great. And obviously, yeah, it goes back to where we started earlier on the discussion about marrying up what we can do with carbon budgets with financial budgets and finding a way forward where we can have a green recovery that is inclusive, uh, that is circular and gets us where we need to be. Thanks so much and have a great day. That was awesome. One of the key challenges we've discussed in this series is how you get an industry to walk the talk, how you turn pledges into action. The work Adam and the team at Perkins and Will and Penroy and Prasoid have done is a wonderful example of this, and one that will have a ripple effect going well into this decade. I particularly liked our discussion on how to make these issues accessible, but without shying away from asking the right questions and sometimes asking the difficult ones. Now that brings this season of Designing with Climate in Mind to a close. And it's been quite the journey. From talking about our connection with nature with Oliver Heath, to seeing climate change firsthand with Dr. Ella Gilbert and Paul Rose, from exploring regenerative mindsets with Michael Paulwin and Mark Shalia, to sustainable futures with Cressy Wessling, Claire Potter, Manish Datta, and Richard Walker. I hope it's provided you with plenty of food for thought. A huge thanks to you and our guests for joining us on Designing with Climate in Mind. If you've enjoyed the series, please subscribe or share or leave a rating on your podcast channels. Goodbye and thanks for listening.